Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, why don't you open it up to John's Gospel, chapter 18. Whether you're joining us online or in person, I really appreciate you being a part of our gathering. It's a wonderful thing to be a part of the family of God and to be a part of a local church, an expression of that family. And for us here, we believe that we will experience renewed life as Jesus renews our affections. And that's why we gather on a Sunday to worship him in open scripture, not just because we believe he changes our mind, but that he transforms our heart in that process. And when he does that, he gives us a whole new sense of purpose in life, an eternal purpose that we get to then carry out and fulfill alongside a whole new community. It's the church, the great gift of uh, friendship and family in the family of God. So I'm so thankful that you'd be a part of that with us. So John's Gospel, chapter 18, I'm going to invite up our reader, Rod, if you'll join me. John 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. We reached the end of our series together as a church, looking at the seven signs found in John, where it climaxes in Jesus raising someone from the dead. It was the last discussion we had talking about Lazarus. However, what I want to do is spend a couple of additional weeks as we lead up towards an Advent series, as we get close to Christmas, where we want to look together at some of the additional high points in John's gospel together before completely moving on from his narrative. 
You see, the first half of John's gospel, it's referred to by many scholars as the book of signs, because that's where those seven signs are recorded for us that Jesus performed that are meant to point us towards a confidence in his identity and deity, that he's trustworthy even. But at the end of John's gospel, the final moments of Jesus' life are recorded, and they too really do function as signposts pointing to a greater reality outside of themselves. You know, we know that John's gospel was the last of the four gospels to be written, which is why he doesn't write it like the previous three. He doesn't write it as a synoptic, a synopsis, an overview of the whole life of Jesus. He doesn't approach it that way. Instead, he would record different stories that were not included in those other gospels, or he would record additional details from familiar stories that were not found in the other gospels because he's assuming that his readers have access to these other gospel copies of Matthew and Mark and of Luke's writings. And this is the case with his take on, his record of the story of Jesus entering into the Garden of Gethsemane. Although John gives the detail in verse 2 that Jesus and his disciples went there often, you kind of have to lean on the other gospel accounts to give you a full picture of what's happening when they enter the garden. The other gospels, they paint the, the portrait. They set the scene for us where they tell us that upon entering the garden, Jesus leaves eight of the other 11 disciples at the entrance of the garden and that three of those move forward with him, and he leaves them within earshot, just a stone's throw away from where he will be found collapsing on the ground, which is a shocking detail, because in that culture, you would typically stand with arms outstretched to pray, and that's what we find Jesus doing three different times, it records in the gospel, that he prays, Father, if there is any other way, take this cup from me, but not my will, yours be done. But rather than Jesus standing in that traditional, typical position or posture of prayer, Jesus is instead found collapsed on the floor. He's praying and he's crying. Three times he even gets up requesting his friends, the three who were so nearby, that they would wake up and that they would pray for him. And each time they fall back asleep with Luke's gospel telling you it's not because of laziness, it's because of sorrow in their hearts that they slept. Remember, Jesus had just finished a meal with them where he told them, my body is going to be broken for you. My blood is going to be shed for you. The portrait, the picture that the Passover in Egypt displayed throughout our history that we commemorate each year is finding its fulfillment in me. And the judgment of God will pass over you only if I shed my blood and give my life first. The guys are overwhelmed. We picture great emotion in them too. So picture the scene then. The Passover celebration is in full swing. The city is overrun. The meal had finished that was in commemoration and anticipation of God's future deliverance of his people. It's now the middle of the night. And Passover, it follows a lunar calendar. So we know it's a full moon. So the, the night sky, it's bright. We also know it's a cold, chilly evening because soon we'll find some of the disciples huddled around a fire pit trying to keep themselves warm. You picture us following a half dozen torches that we find underneath those torches, Jesus and 11 of the 12 disciples with him walking out of the city of Jerusalem before arriving at the place called Gethsemane, a a place that is just east of the Temple Mount. Down from the Temple Mount, you'd walk down into a valley across the Brook Kidron, 
which matters. It's significant. And other gospel writers pointed out as well as John, because King David in the Old Testament, the rightful king of Israel, would be rejected by the people and he too would walk the way of sorrow, leaving the city that he would rightfully be king over, but he would pass over the brook Kidron to mourn the fact that he was rejected. And now Jesus, the son of David, is doing the very same thing. And this is where we find him on the lower slopes of the Mount of Olives with a view of the temple in front of him. Through the east gate, you could see the temple above him, Josephus would tell us. You'd see smoke rising from the sacrifices. The brook Kidron would have been water and blood that would have been washing down from atop the altar, from all of these sacrifices, all of these lambs whose lives were being given that weekend in order to cover the sin of the nation. And Jesus, we find him entering the Garden of Gethsemane, not to hide himself from death so much as he's there to prepare himself for it. Gethsemane is a really interesting word. It's two Hebrew words squished together. It, it literally means olive press or oil press. You see, what would happen there along the Mount of Olives is they would collect the olives and bring it down to the press that was found in Gethsemane. You see, first the olives, they would be crushed under the weight of a millstone. And then those crushed olives and seeds would be put into baskets that functioned as big filters. The baskets would be stacked one on top of another, and the weight of those baskets themselves would begin to extract the first of three presses that would be given to those olives. It's called extra virgin olive oil because the Latin word for the stone that was used as a counterweight to apply pressure was called virgin in Latin. Without a weight being applied, the first of the presses would extract the purest of oils. It'd be used in the temple of God. Then a second press would be made as you'd add counterbalance and weight to it to push and apply pressure on it. That oil, it would be used for cooking and for medicinal purposes, but then a third and final press would be applied. But the oil that would be extracted was not nearly as pure, so it was used for lighting oil lamps in your home. With nothing left to extract, historians tell us, with nothing left to be extracted, there would never be a fourth press. Three times you would press and crush the olives, just as you find Jesus there at the place of pressing. He too, three times, will cry out as he is pressed, as he is crushed, crushed. He's weary, it tells you, and full of sorrow, even unto the point of death, Jesus speaks up and says. There was nothing left to give. There was nothing left to be extracted from him. The prophet Isaiah, he answers the question of why Jesus is there and why he's being crushed and pressed. He answers it some 700 years before Jesus would come in Isaiah 53, where it says he was despised and rejected a man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest of grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care, yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrow that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. You see, the gravity of what was coming was beginning to be felt by Jesus. The weight of our sin is beginning to crush him in this moment. This wasn't Satan and his minions assaulting and afflicting Jesus. This is more than just mere fear of inside of Jesus of what was coming. 
This was the feeling and experience of Jesus taking our sin and its punishment upon himself. It's all of the shame and remorse that we have ever felt. It's all the sorrow and grief that comes with it. He's even beginning to sense the the sense of isolation and separation that sin causes in us. Soon he'll cry out on a cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the shadow of that moment looms over this one. The great preacher of old, Charles Spurgeon, he said it this way. He said, surely the agony in Gethsemane was part of the great burden that was already resting upon him as his people's substitute. It was this that pressed his spirit down even into the dust of death. He was to bear the full weight of it upon the cross, but I am persuaded that the passion began in the garden of Gethsemane. You see, we're told that Jesus' experience in agony was so intense in Gethsemane that he describes it himself as being almost unto death. A little more, he felt, and he would have died. In a place called the Olive Press, Gethsemane, the place of crushing, Jesus himself was nearly crushed under the pressure of my sin and yours being laid upon his shoulders, nearly being crushed under the severity of his sorrow. There are undoubtedly really important things that God wants to reveal to us in this moment in Gethsemane. And I say that with confidence because when you think about it, there are a few stories that are recorded in all four Gospels, and yet this one is included in all four. There are a few moments in the Gospels that are foretold with such detail by the ancient prophets, and yet this one was foretold by the prophet Isaiah with such detail that you would have thought Isaiah was on his knees next to Jesus in this moment taking notes. Gethsemane is even something that's revisited in the future of the book in the epistles. And Gethsemane, it reaches all the way back to the Garden of Eden and all the way forward to the great garden of God. We call it paradise or heaven with its implications of this moment. This is an eternal moment. So what I want to do is just spend a few minutes highlighting four of those things. Four of the things that I think that this story is meant to reveal to us. And the first is rather simple, but it's so very important. And it's this. And if you're taking notes, write this down. It's that Gethsemane displays Jesus' humanity. The first thing you should notice in the story is that Gethsemane displays Jesus' humanity. Gethsemane really is the greatest depiction and reminder of Jesus' humanity we really find anywhere in Scripture. See, as a follower of Jesus, I believe that Jesus was fully God and somehow simultaneously fully man. Not 50-50, but 100% God, never losing that identity and yet becoming completely a man. The theological term that's used to describe it is called the hypostatic union, hypostasis. It's talking of substance, that there's a union of two different substances. It's this theological term that describes the union of Christ's humanity and his deity existing in one unique individual existence. And you should know this. Jesus needed to be divine because mere men are born with a sinful, fallen, broken nature and could never then in perfection live as sons of Adam. He never could become our substitute if he, like we, was sinful and broken. So he needed to be divine, but Jesus also needed to be human. He could not only be divine. He needed to be human because he needed to live a human life in perfection as a man and die as a substitute for mankind. If he were merely God, he would not have been able to endure the punishment and judgment that mankind had earned. But early in the gospel records, 
when we see flashes of deity bursting through his humanity, we become accustomed to those moments. But by the time we near the gospel's end where we've landed today, the one that we've come to find is God among us is soaking the pathways of Gethsemane in tears. It's no longer the shock or surprise of Jesus' deity that bursts through his humanity that makes us gaze and wonder. It's all of a sudden now the frailty of his humanity that draws our attention in close. You see, Gethsemane displays the humanity of Jesus, and he needed to be human theologically, but I'd argue he also needed to be human practically, which leads us really to a second thing. It's not that this moment just reveals or displays Jesus' humanity. It also, a second thing, it reveals Jesus' sympathy. He didn't just need to be human theologically. He really needed to be human practically because we'd find him to be sympathetic. We'd find in him a gracious and capable high priest and comforter. You should know that the humanity of Jesus enables him to relate to us in a very, very powerful way. The book of Hebrews describes Jesus as our high priest, which a high priest in the Old Testament, there's only one character in the whole of the nation, and his job was to enter into the divine presence of God to represent humanity before God, to bring about their forgiveness and a covering for them through a sacrifice, and at the same time to represent God back down to humanity as he would come out of that sacred space with God and pronounce the judgment of God being appeased by that sacrifice for another year, there was a covering for sin. Jesus would take that position of the one who would represent man to God and that God also back to man. This is what Jesus would do. And here's what Hebrews 4 says about him. It says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us. It literally means to suffer with our weaknesses. But we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. In our modern culture, we can tell someone, you have my sympathy. We hear about what they're going through, we say, you have my sympathy. My sympathy is with you. But unfortunately, it doesn't really mean that, that they have much of my attention or really even any of my care. It doesn't mean or imply that I'm motivated to do much of anything for them. It can almost feel like an empty feeling when when someone says thoughts and prayers, or you have my sympathy, deepest sympathy and regards, because it feels like you're, you're disconnected from real action or real care, like step in and do something. Don't just say you have my sympathy. But that's not what's communicated here. It's not saying that God's detached and says, you have now my sympathy. Thoughts and prayers, best regards or wishes. No, not, that's not it at all. It's saying that he shudders with us that he deeply cares for us, that he's even driven into action to rescue us. You see, only a human could sympathize and suffer with our weakness and temptations. And Jesus as a human was subjected to all the same hurts and, and trials and temptations that we are. Jesus was tempted. He was persecuted. He was betrayed. He was poor. He referred to himself as homeless. He was despised, he was abandoned, he was misunderstood, he was rejected. He suffered in intense physical pain. He endured the sorrows of an incredibly cruel, isolating death. He even felt the shame connected to our sinfulness. Only a human being could experience those things, and only a human being could fully understand them through experience. You see, the moment teaches us that God understands. It reveals the sympathy of Jesus. 
that he suffers with us. You see, we're confident that Jesus knows our weakness, not because he was patient with the disciples when they fell asleep when he asked them to pray. That's not why we believe that, that, that he knows our weakness, but because he himself became acquainted with our weakness, because he walked in our shoes and suffered with us and for us. You see, if you've ever felt frustrated and questioned God's real connection to your feelings or, or pressures or pains, then hear me say our perception of God, of how he thinks and what he feels, it dramatically changes because of this moment in this garden. Because we find Jesus on the floors of Gethsemane, crushed and overcome with sorrow and soaking the floor with his tears. Think about who this is that we find collapsed on the floor. It's the one who Isaiah says can hold the universe in the span of his hand. Isaiah is pointing out God's amazing omnipresence and, and his all-powerful nature, that he's without limit. That's who's crumbling to the floor, the God that is that big. Maybe you've heard it described this way before, but if the distance from the earth to the sun, which is 92 million miles, if we illustrated that or gave an example before you and said it, it will represent it just with the thickness of a single sheet of paper, that that single sheet of paper, that thick, so tiny, so narrow, that that represented 92 million miles, then the distance from our earth to our closest star would be compared to a stack of paper that would reach 70, 71 feet into the air. Or if we compared it maybe even to the diameter of our galaxy, it would be represented by a stack of paper 310 miles wide. And that galaxy is hardly more than a speck of dust amidst the cosmos, amongst the universe that it's set into. This is how big and grand and massive a capable God is that we trust. And remember that he's the one who then invites us, even instructs us to approach him as a child does their father, addressing him as our father who, yes, is holy, he's high above, he's set apart, he's categorically different. That's how big and massive and wonderful our God is. That great God, though, would take upon flesh and walk among us. If that's who God is, then he's not someone you just hire as a consultant for your life or as a personal assistant to help you to reach your goals. That is someone you bow your knee to as Lord of your life because he's God of the universe. Oh, don't miss this. Gethsemane, this moment, it takes the God who we needed to be big enough to measure the universe in the span of his hand and makes him small enough to place his arm around us when we too are pressed and crushed in life and to hear him gently whisper in that moment, I understand. Gethsemane takes the massive, all-powerful God and makes him so deeply personal. You know, for many of us, we've found that in our grief, that God never took us anywhere that he wouldn't take us through. And that although the scriptures are true that he leads us through the valley of the shadow of death, many of us have found that what he really does is he meets us in those dark valleys. That he's present with us to comfort us in those moments. You see, God joins us on our knees in the dust of Gethsemane, in the dust of the place of pressure and crushing. And that's when we remember and see the tears on his cheeks, where we hear his voice tremble and where he whispers in a gentle voice, my son, I know. Man, how the saints of old longed for this day. 
how Joseph longed to hear God whisper to him, I understand. When he faced injustice and betrayal, when he was hated without a cause, if only he had seen this moment and seen a cross to know that Jesus could whisper, I understand. Oh, King David, he longed to hear it too. David longed to hear it after he was misunderstood and rejected and forced out into solitude alone, that he would walk the way of sorrows out of Jerusalem, rejected even though he's their rightful king. Oh, he longed to hear another rightful king find himself across that same brook Kidron who'd whisper and say, oh, David, I understand. Oh, it's Job who would have longed to have heard it. After losing absolutely everything, he cries out asking for a mediator, saying, isn't there someone who could come and place a hand on me and a hand on God and connect us together. That's what I'm longing for. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, it says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That man Christ Jesus who will soon go to a cross, where he will be suspended between heaven and earth, literally connecting heaven and earth once again, connecting God with man. And in this moment, in Gethsemane, on its floors, the connection is not so much judicial. The connection that Jesus is building is deeply personal. Because you and I, when we find him in this garden, we hear him whisper to us that I understand. And because he whispers from this garden, we know that we also hear from this lonely garden the gentle promise that I care. Because we find him there because he's willing to be crushed for our iniquity. He's there because he's willing to take on our judgment and punishment. Oh, we know he understands and we know he cares because of this moment. Oh, when Jesus came, he became the visible expression of the invisible God. John says no one's ever seen God except the only begotten who came to declare him. That's what John 1 says to us. Jesus came to be the visible expression of an invisible God. But when Jesus suffered, he not only paved the way for me to be forgiven and accepted by God, he also proved that God understands me and draws near me in my pain. This garden demonstrates that more clearly than any other place in the scriptures. Every other religion is trying to wave at some distant God, trying to get him to notice you. But not the Christian message because that is not what you find Christ doing. God came so near in Christ that he suffered for you, and God remains so near that he continues to suffer with you. Oh, marvel at the beauty and power of this reality, of the gracious, wonderful, amazing, limitless God who took on human flesh and suffered for you. First Peter says, oh, cast your cares upon him, knowing that he cares about what happens to you. You see, Gethsemane it reveals Jesus' sympathy that he suffers with you. You know, each of the four Gospels do record this moment. And the other three Gospels, they really emphasize Jesus' humanity in this moment. That he buckles under the weight of his suffering as humanity's sin is laid upon him. You see, the other three Gospels, they, they reveal Jesus as human enough to understand us and simultaneously as God enough to rescue us. That's what we find in their accounts of Gethsemane, the one who is human enough to understand us and still God enough to rescue us. But John, however, he emphasizes, rather than Jesus' humanity in the garden, you probably notice that he really emphasizes Jesus' deity in the garden. 
And so that's the third thing that I want to point out to you. Not just his humanity, not just his sympathy, but that Gethsemane stuns us with Jesus' deity. It stuns us with his deity. Look for a moment at the group of people who came to arrest Jesus, how they make up the broad spectrum of all of humanity. Where in verse 3 it says it's a detachment of Roman Gentile troops along with officers from the Jewish chief priests and Pharisees. Think through this. When you've got anti-Semitic movements happening in our modern era, think through this. The Jews are not to blame for this moment. It's all of humanity. The pious and the pagan are present in this moment, the Pharisee and the Roman. The prominent and the blue collar are there turning their backs on Jesus. It's the priests and the soldiers. It's the Jew and the Gentile all together. All of humanity were, in a sense, represented in that moment of rejection of the God-man. But look at the dialogue that takes place in this moment, beginning in verse 4, where Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with him. Now when Jesus had said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now you probably noticed in your own Bible that that there's an italicized word there. The word he is italicized, and there's probably even a little asterisk next to it, or a little note, a footnote for you. It's because the translators added the word he because it seems like clunky grammar without it, for Jesus to just say, I am. But it's intentional clunky grammar. I am, the statement that Jesus makes here, it says with that statement, it knocks them all off of their feet and onto their backs. In that moment, there's this flash of Jesus' deity that strikes through his humanity like a lightning bolt. In Greek, it's I me ego. It's first found in the, in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 3, where the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Hebrew Scriptures, translates the name of God with this very statement. Where you remember, Moses stands before the burning bush and he's asking God, who are you? And this is how God responds, I am, I'm Diego. Jesus is taking that title on right now. The title for the ancient sacred name of God, the God of Israel. But it's a strange title if you think about it, I am. What is I am trying to communicate to us? Well, for God to say of himself, for Jesus to say it as well, of himself, God in the flesh, for him to say, I am, he's telling you that he is self-sufficient. That there will be a day in our history or in our lifetime where we will say that God was, and there never was a day in the past where people said God will be. He is the only being without a cause who is eternally existent. It's not just that he's self-sufficient, but he's all-sufficient. That's what I am is meant to communicate to us. I mean, what does it mean for God to say that I am? We, we want to fill in the blank on the end of that. You're saying I am. Well, are you able to meet my needs? I am. Are you able to provide for me? I am. Are you able to protect me? I am. Are you wise enough and strong enough to rescue me? I am. You see, this statement of God attributing this to himself, he's saying that he is self-sufficient and all-sufficient, that there's no one like him. We call him holy, categorically different and set apart from anything or anyone else we would ever find or interact with. You see, Jesus is here making a very clear claim to deity. In Gethsemane, it stuns us with his deity. 
And the reason it's so stunning is that God is not always what we expect him to be or doing what we expect him to do, and this scene is no exception. I mean, think again back to the Old Testament scriptures in the book of Exodus, chapters 33 and 34, where you find Moses asking God, I want to see your glory. Remember, God gave him a name, and now he's saying, would you show me your nature? Would you tell me, would you show me what you're really like, who you really are? And God's response to him is a bit startling, because when he says, show me your glory, God responds and says, I will show you my goodness. If you were asked, give me a word that describes the God of the Bible, how would you respond? Because the God of the Bible responds and says goodness, that he's good. I want to know who you really are. Would you show me your glory? And God says to him, I'll, I'll cause my goodness to pass you by. But remember in the story what happens. It's recorded for you in Exodus 34, beginning in verse 5, where it says it this way. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, listen to how God describes himself, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving, hear that, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. It's this crazy moment where God is expressing his goodness and glory to Moses. And what he says is that he's forgiving and compassionate, full of loving kindness. But then he also says that he is simultaneously unwilling to let the guilty go unpunished. Now, how in the world? How in the world can someone be gracious and, and loving and compassionate and forgiving on one hand, and yet on the other, never allowing the guilty to go unpunished? It feels like two dueling realities that cannot be reconciled. It's like two warring entities, someone who will not allow the guilty to go unpunished versus someone who's ready and wanting to give mercy and forgiveness. How could both of these things be true of our God? It's this grand mystery throughout the Old Testament that only makes sense in the shadow of the cross, that only makes sense on this side of the cross, where God is, yes, mysterious and yet known, where he's proven to be powerful yet meek, where we see him as high above yet gentle and lowly, where he's just and he's loving, where he's wrathful and he's merciful, where he's holy and forgiving. As one commentator put it, God is both a God of love and of wrath, and it is at the cross that we see these are not in conflict, but working together to save the world. Oh, think about the complexity, the uniqueness of our God. In Gethsemane, the other Gospels record the emphasis is on Jesus' request to the Father, where three times he asks him, can you take this cup from me? Remember, the cup is a picture in the Old Testament of divine judgment being poured out on sinful man. Whereas John records the emphasis not on Jesus' request to the Father, but on Jesus' comment about the Father's request of him. Where he says at the end of verse 11, after telling Peter, put away your sword, that's not what we're here to do. He said, shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? No other religion in the world depicts or describes God as a Father. But it's the imagery that Jesus chooses to use again and again. It's how Jesus describes and depicts God. 
And it's put beautifully in different passages of scripture. You know, I think of like Luke 15, where he tells the story of the father who has two sons who both seem to be estranged from him. You see him gracious and pleading with his sons to come and to be with him. He's seen as running out to meet his son, embracing him and kissing him. Oh, this is the gracious, lavish love of God, a father for his people. This is how Jesus sees the father. It's the portrait that Jesus painstakingly paints in the gospels for us. Oh, this is how so many of us have come to see God too. But how then do you reconcile that image of God with the one who in this moment also hands the son the cup of suffering? That image of a father running to embrace and rescue and kiss the son is now handing him the cup of suffering. See, this is where we begin to realize just how unique our God is because he's not just gracious and loving. He is simultaneously just and holy. To remove the one or the other is to not give a true image or clear portrait of who God is. As Jesus says here, it is the Father who gives me the cup to drink. Oh, but we think, and we'd say even, we'd even question in our own lives, well, God can't be good if this is how he then would treat his children. He can't be good if he allows them to suffer like this. He can't be good if he's also sovereign, and yet here I am and my life is in pieces. He can't be a father if he also hands out the cup that involves suffering. And yet Jesus with confidence says it's the father who hands him this cup of suffering because God is both just and loving. You see, we find the justice of God and the mercy of God coming together in a climactic moment that displays his character like nowhere else in human history. It's found in God's embracing of suffering in Jesus. For God proves that his love is equally as powerful as his justice when he's willing to take upon himself the judgment that we deserve in order for him to then be able to embrace and welcome us with the love of a father, that love that has filled his heart. In that moment, he, the just judge, will bring justice and the gracious heart of the father who shows mercy will extend forgiveness. Do you see in Jesus' statement, there in verse 8 even, do you see it where he says, if you seek me, if you take me, you're here to arrest me, if you're taking me to go and die, then let these go their way. He's saying, take me and forgive them. This was not the the gentle request of a feeble prisoner who's overpowered in this moment. This is the statement of the great I am. It's the eternal pronouncement that Jesus made in the moment as he became humanity's substitute. Oh, take me and forgive them. As author John Stott said in his book, Christ or the Cross of Christ, he writes, the concept of substitution may be said then, to lie in the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is a man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. Oh, in this moment, Jesus is saying, take me and forgive them. Something you'll hear him pray from the cross, Father, forgive them. 
for they know not what they do. Oh, this moment is pregnant with meaning and with depth. Oh, my friends, our God is a God both of wrath and of love. And both his wrath and his love are filled and satisfied as they come together at the cross, establishing justice and mercy simultaneously. I was thinking this morning as I drove here that if even God would not bend and twist his judgment and justice, even to protect himself from it, then I should not assume for a moment that I could. That God who is the judge and who is just, he will have a just judgment. Oh, but at the cross I see his mercy and his judgment coming together so beautifully. Oh, this moment, it does show me Jesus' humanity and it, it proves then that he has great sympathy, but it's meant to wow and amaze us with the deity, the God who walked among us. Okay, one final thing in the storyline of this moment in Gethsemane, and if you want to, you can close your Bible. It's that Gethsemane is also meant to point us ahead to a future garden. We're not to have our minds remain in this place because this is not the final garden in Jesus' story. It's not just that Jesus' story doesn't end there, it's that humanity's doesn't either. You see, you may identify with Jesus in this moment in Gethsemane if you too are here today suffering and like him are crying out saying, if there's any other way, Father, take this from me but then in faith expressing, but not my will, yours be done. Oh, but you need to know that if you identify with Jesus in this moment in Gethsemane, that, that if you do identify with him, then you are going to also identify with him in a future garden. Because all of humanity's story can be summed up in the tale of four gardens. We're beginning in the Garden of Eden. Adam, a man, took a fall and, and was led to a tree that led to his death. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus would take a stand and he would go to a tree that would lead to our life. Oh, but then there is a garden tomb where neither death nor a grave could hold or house him. But then there's a fourth garden in the future, the great garden to come where Jesus on the cross, you had heard him say to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. It's literally translated a garden in clothes. It's speaking of heaven, a place of no more pain or sorrow, where he wipes away all of our tears, where peace and justice reign in place of sin, sickness, suffering, and death. That's not just our great future hope. That is our great future secured. Because the just and holy God would take justice and judgment upon himself in an act of mercy so that you and I could be forgiven. You see, the pathway into that future garden first runs through this one. Let me remind you, it's not just that Jesus' story doesn't end here, it's that yours and mine doesn't have to either. Our story can contain more sorrow and pressing and brokenness, but first we must accept Jesus' invitation to, to meet him on the floors of Gethsemane, to meet him in vulnerability and in honesty, to meet him in those moments with faith. Please hear me, for some of you, you came in today and what you really need to hear is that Jesus meets us in our own places of suffering and crushing, our own moments of pressure. It's in those moments that we find him seated with us, gently whispering, I understand. For others of you, maybe for the very first time, you need to echo Jesus' words, 
that not my will but yours be done. Father, I trust you and entrust myself to you. Well, I want to remind you that Jesus' story doesn't end here, but ours is not meant to either. So, Father, I thank you for this story, this amazing moment in history where the God-men who walked among us would walk into our suffering and face it and drink of it deeply. Father, you amaze us. Our great God, who we call a father, who is a just judge, but would place himself under the judgment so that we could be forgiven and accepted and recipients of mercy. God, I'm thankful for this moment where we see the humanity that you took on and the suffering you endured. God, we're also so thankful to see the beauty and wonder of your deity and glory in this moment. God, comfort hearts. We want to cast our cares on you knowing that you care for us. In Jesus' name. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.